0: Hello, and welcome to Above Average Intelligence from the DSR Network. I'm one of your co-hosts who is above average in intelligence, David Rothkopf, and our other co-host, who is even more above average in intelligence than I am, is Professor Mark Polymeropoulos. How are you doing today, Professor? I'm
1: sporting my new uh, Citadel shirt as uh, as Professor Polymeropoulos is going to make his debut next fall. Um, but I'm a little sleepy, you know last night Super Bowl went late. um it was fun watching you know uh you know Taylor Swift infect all the MAGA brains. The brain worms are everywhere now um and I got up at uh four thirty to uh to do uh a little, some some t v um so i'm I'm jazzed up. I've had a lot of coffee, so beware today.
0: Both of you guys do that five a m show. <laughs> I would never do a five a m show. I don't know why you do it. When I say you guys, I am referring to our guest and our friend. Um, Michael Weiss, who is a great uh, journalist and a commentator on a podcast that we sometimes have here on our own DSR network and who uh, is probably one of the best informed people that I know about what's going on in Ukraine, in Russia, in the Eastern Bloc, but he also pays some attention to what's going on in the Middle East. So we can talk about all of that. But Michael, I'd like to start. Have you had enough coffee this morning to be able to answer the questions in rapid succession? (laughs)
2: You asking questions to which you already know the answer because I, I actually held up my—I call it the Nova Chuck at Starbucks. It's uh, venti iced coffee with seven shots. So I drop my daughter off at school. I get one of those, and then I reach baseline level of productivity. Yeah, and then it well, only increases from there.
0: Well, I, we're 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 glad you're there and ready because the the first question is a tough one that has had me vibrating roughly like somebody else who would have nine shots of coffee, and that is. Donald Trump this weekend inviting Russia to attack NATO. Yes, he said he was doing this in the context of the protection racket that he thinks NATO is, Um, but he said Russia could do whatever the hell it wanted with NATO as far as he was concerned. Um, The uh, uh, Secretary General of NATO has taken some objection to this. Um, Personally, I thought it was the kind of statement That would get a candidate immediately disqualified. That you would immediately get a party saying, oh, no, we can't have somebody like that. They're actively working for our enemies and against everything we've worked for for 80 years. But that doesn't seem to be what's happening. Uh, And I'm very interested in how you saw this and its implications.
2: Well, let me um, start by giving you an anecdote. So in 2016, I um, I was in Europe particularly um, in the Baltic states. And I went to Vilnius, capital of Lithuania. And I interviewed some uh, politicians there, including the then Lithuanian foreign minister, Linus Linkovicius. And we were sitting in his office and on the screen, he had the giant television across from where he was sitting. They were playing news footage from the US and this was in the midst of the uh, election season Back then, and Donald Trump comes on air, and I, I can't remember what he was saying, but it was some glib stupidity. And I turned to the Lithuanian foreign minister and I said, "So, you know, you're sitting here as a frontline state, um, a former illegally annexed territory of the Soviet Union, a NATO member since 2004, uh, and I know the Baltic sensibility quite well. I mean, what do you make of this guy, and and, and what do you think?" And he sat back in his chair and he said it's the end of the West. Now that was a pretty arresting comment at the time. Um, no doubt there would be some, you know, sort of contrarian takes that that was hysterical or alarmist, but I don't think it is. And I don't think it is particularly now in 2024 when Trump is even more uncorked and more candid about what he intends in a second presidential administration. Um, there are not going to be adults in the room this time to restrain him. There are not going to be institutional um, bulwarks, apart from other branches of federal government, of course. But within his own White House, I think he's going to install toadies and cronies and rabid ideologues who are unqualified on a simple level of competence to do the job, but who really want to envisage the, who, who do envisage the the remaking of, of the, the modern world. Um, and when the president of the United States gets up and says, "You know, it's one thing to say, of all our NATO member states and allies, that the, the, the majority do not meet the two percent spending of GDP on defense, which is not a bylaw per se, but a guideline or an objective, and that they really should." That's that's a fair comment and a fair criticism that that many sensible politicians and centrists ha- have made over the years, myself included. It's another to say. We're not going to come to the defense of any country that doesn't, um, which invalidates Article 5, which is the entire raison d'etre of NATO. Um, it's another thing then to say, not only will, will we not come to the defense, but I'm going to egg on Russia, a country that's committing a genocidal war of conquest in Europe as we speak, to do whatever the hell they want to these countries. I mean, that's, that's, that's not even incitement, that goes beyond. That's, that's sort of treasonous as far as I'm concerned. And I, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of people say, well, you know, he doesn't mean it, or even if he does mean it, Congress has passed this law that says the U.S. can't withdraw from NATO without Senate approval. It doesn't matter. Um, the minute the President of the United States says we will not enforce collective security as part of this alliance, he is single-handedly chiseling the gravestone of, of NATO. I mean, it, 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 it's just symbolically, it's, it's dead, but also, in fact, it is dead. Because without the United States, let's be honest, um, there is no collective security.
0: Yeah. And I mean, the reality is, of course, you, first of all, as far as passing a law, Trump has already shown he's completely uh, disinterested in observing uh, or obeying the laws that exist. But secondly, you can imagine almost any situation uh, that might occur when Russia did unve- unleash such an attack. If, if if the President of the United States doesn't seek a response, doesn't order a response, uh, or in fact vetoes anything that the Congress suggests a response, it's over. So right. it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what this legislation um, says. Uh, Mark, I, I, I know this also set what remains of your hair on fire. Um, uh, maybe you could uh, offer a comment or two before you then turn and offer your question from
1: Sure, sure. So, you know, there's, there's a couple of things on this one, you know, and I'll give you a, a sense of why this was so outrageous to me. But let's also kind of put this in a global perspective. This has led the front pages of European publications of the press for the last 24 hours, whether it's Le Monde, whether it's um, uh, the BBC, The Guardian, the Greek press. I have friends from Greece reaching out to me. Um, and so so in essence, you know, Europe is now kind of understanding that they have to go through with what I call left of boom you know, disaster planning in in the event of of Trump too. Um, And I think Michael had it right in the sense of, you know, know, the U.S. really was the security umbrella um, uh, uh, for NATO, including a nuclear deterrent. And so you can make a very cogent argument in the international relations world is that Trump's comments actually made war more likely in in Europe, you know, um, uh, will spur on uh, additional Russian aggression. And so, you know, uh, that's something that, that I think a lot of, you know, planners in, in, in Europe are really looking at now, but let me just, the thing that really bothered me, you know, I spent quite a bit of time in Afghanistan, starting in 2002. And then later on in 2011, I'm going to read you. And this is what I was, uh, you know, I read on the air this morning too. Um, this is the numbers of, of NATO forces who were killed, killed defending America, not defending Europe, but defending America after, after 9-11. Um, 456 from the UK. 40 from Poland, 25 from the Netherlands, 86 from France, 158 from Canada, 58, 53 from Italy, 43 from Denmark, and, and the list goes on. And so Trump's comments, oh, this is an insult to their families. So I think it hit me um, pretty profoundly. You know, David and Michael, you both know me. I'm from New Jersey. I don't really react soberly all the time. Um, but this was really outrageous and, and, uh, and on, on many levels. And then the saddest thing in the end is that, you know, nobody in the GOP, um, including the so-called you know GOP foreign policy moderates, heavyweights, you know, sane people, nobody came out and said much uh, uh, at all, and that to me um, was uh, w- was pretty distressing. I think you saw Senator Rubio's um, appearance on the on the Sunday shows, and he was just kind of, as Michael said, trying to explain away, "Oh, this is just Trump being Trump," but that's nonsense. This had a profound effect uh, globally uh, for the United States. I, I just want to interject here because. You know, this is
0: for us to vent. Michael, feel free to vent yourself. But um, most of the Sunday shows led with the issue of Biden's age. Right. You know, in European in the European media, this is the lead story because it's the end of the West, as Michael puts it. But here, we're talking about whether Biden could remember the name of the title of the president of Egypt or something like that. Um, and we're downplaying this absolute... Treasonous comment. Anyway, sorry to interrupt.
2: Well, I think, the, but, but to Mark's point, I, I think Europeans, um, I mean, I increasingly see myself more European than American these days. And, and let me say, I, you know, I, I did cringe watching the, the Biden press conference. I thought it was driven by um, anger and defensiveness. And it, it certainly struck me that he gave it because of the insult that he took. Uh, about not remembering um, his own son's demise, right um, but you know it, it was it was awkward, it was a little bit embarrassing, and I don't think that the media is is being wrong to to raise these questions about uh, commander in chief's age however, and this is a big however with an asterisk I mean my friend the filmmaker Whit Stillman tweeted, Biden in a coma is still better an alternative than Donald Trump, right. Uh, And and Witt's a fairly conservative guy. I mean, I'm increasingly of this view, not increasingly, I am of this view. And I think most Europeans are of this view too, that, um, yeah, okay. I mean, you know, could either party or could the Democratic Party perhaps put up someone younger and more robust and energetic? Sure. But, uh, you know, the old expression, you go to war with the army you have. Well, you go to the ballot box with the, the candidate that is designated, who has already sewn up the nomination. And again, we are facing... And I don't, I don't mean to say to sound alarmist or to to be hyperbolic here, but I do think Trump 2.0 is an existential threat, not just to the United States but to the world. Uh, Again, because he's now driven by a real animus toward what he sees as a corrupt and sclerotic and um, uh, revengeful establishment embodied by the so-called deep state and Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey and I mean all of these conspiracy theories now that are gushing. To the surface this is a guy who um, detests the country Ukraine because in his mind uh, it is responsible for his first impeachment because he was trying to blackmail Ukraine into uh, going after his political enemy again one Joe Biden um, this is somebody who clearly and again we don't have to we, we don't have to relitigate the, the Mueller investigation or Trump Russia stuff but clearly has a very warm spot in his heart for Vladimir Putin. Uh, as he does for most authoritarian strongmen, Xi in China, um, the dictator of North Korea. I think, you know, there's there's an old um, anecdote I'm fond of from the 1930s when, you know, you had the rise of fellow travelers of Soviet communism and British journalist Malcolm Muggeridge went to Moscow at the invitation of Sydney and Beatrice Webb, who perhaps the two most famous fellow travelers uh, in academia. There's actually a, a chair... They endowed at the London School of Economics, and when he got back, Muggeridge, the the scales had fallen from his eyes because he had seen what Stalinism actually was. And someone asked him, "Why do you think your 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 two friends, Sidney and Beatrice, are so keen on this man and on this system?" To which Muggeridge replied, "Well, it's because Stalin is doing to intellectuals in Russia what they'd like to be doing to intellectuals in Britain." And I think for Trump, his 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 tropism toward these kind of illiberal, undemocratic authoritarian models is he wants to do what they're able to do. He doesn't want any kind of restrictions on his political power. He wants to be a dictator. He feels he's entitled to be a dictator. And and worst of all now, I think, as opposed to, again, when he first ran for office, he's out for blood. He is driven by this real sense of grievance and this real sense to, um, you know, sort of go after all of his enemies real and perceived, whether they be in the Democratic Party or indeed in our intelligence community, our military, anybody who stood in his way uh, even, even before January 6th. That's what worries me. And I think that, that threat, unfortunately, we've become so desensitized to the, sh- the Trump show. You know there's still elements of it that are sort of low comedy, and that you know you kind of roll your eyes and you shrug your shoulders. but the danger is in that that the desensitization makes us less mindful of just what a threat that he poses. Uh, and you know again, I travel a lot to, to to Europe, and you know I do cover countries that used to be part of the Soviet Union or within the Warsaw Pact. and there's a real terror. Um, it's palpable, and it's it's now to the point where we have to act as if We don't have the United States on our side anymore, which was, I mean, up until recently, an unfathomable consideration.
1: (laughs) Right. Well, on that very inspiring note, um, I'd only add that uh, uh, we're lucky to have you here today, Michael, because um, we're going to shift gears a little bit, talk a little bit about Russian intelligence, and and you know, I consider you uh, as as a national security journalist, one of the preeminent um, scholars thinkers uh, about Russian intelligence, and you've done some things recently um, to expose Russian intelligence activities in europe, and perhaps this is uh, makes some sense in what we're talking about now. I'd only throw in there that I could imagine champagne corks being popped at uh, you know in the forest, which is the SVR headquarters outside of moscow after after trump's statements. but jump in a little bit to what you're doing now in terms of your work with the insider, your work exposing Russian intelligence. Um, why it matters and also why you seem to be in some sense beating the counterintelligence organs of, uh, of some European countries in the sense of you're exposing things that really they should have been doing all along. But uh, a really tremendous work. Um, again, Russian intelligence views, in my view, uh, looks at Europe as their playground and, uh, and you're doing yeoman's work and uh, exposing their activities.
2: Uh, thanks for the, the, the kind endorsement there. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. Uh, my colleagues at the Insider, Christo Grozev and Roman Dobryhotov, um, they're fond of saying that, and th- this will strike many listeners of this show as paradoxical, but they're fond of saying that Russia is the most transparent country in the world in the sense that all data uh, pertaining to all citizens or security officials or military personnel in that country is for sale, can be acquired on the dark web through telegram merchants. Very often, many of them uh, are working for active duty FSB officers who are corrupt and are looking to make money by stealing or selling data from their other jobs, which is t- t- tend to be you know, consultants for uh, Russian companies that need to have security checks in place and so on. So what we end up doing is when we see... Uh, what is very clearly to, to ourselves anyway, a Russian intelligence operation. And we see that, that some persona is, um, acting in a way that, that bespeaks espionage. And of course is using, using a pseudonym. We are able to piece together, uh, that person's identity using this sort of, you know, sort of kind of underground, uh, current of information. Uh, in, in most cases, um, it, it, it's quite lazily compiled their legend or their their cover story. So, in other words, we're able to to find out someone is a spy on the basis of their registered address, which quite often is the FSB academy or the GRU, uh, you know, uh, dormitory. Um, we can trace their car records. Uh, the fact that their uh, passports are issued in a, a sequence. In other words, everyone has a number on their passport, and we've you know. Christo and Ramon were able to identify the Skripal uh, assassins in 2018 on the basis of the fact that their fake passports were literally l- numbered like one, two, three, four, five, which doesn't happen in nature, right? Which which suggests that the, there's some kind of artificial manufacturing enterprise, which would only occur if if somebody were traveling, uh, you know, for clandestine purposes. So, you know, in in all of the cases we've exposed and and we've done um, we've outed intelligence operations in. Uh, Latvia, Germany, and Italy, and that was in the past two weeks. What's interesting about these cases, you know, unlike during the Cold War, where if you were a spy, um, y- you you were well hidden, or or you did have to develop a convincing backstory. Your tradecraft tended to be a little more sophisticated. I mean, if you think only of the Cambridge Five, Kim Philby, who went to fratricidal Spain posing as a pro fascist. Um, correspondent for the Times of London, was deeply embedded with, with Franco's army, um, was the quintessence of the British posh establishment of the time, uh, even though there were some burblings that he had communist sympathies and all that, it took a while for him to, to be exposed. In every case that we're looking at, the agents run by Russian intelligence officers are all kind of <laughs> hiding in plain sight. Uh, So, you know, we've exposed a a sitting member of European Parliament, uh, Tatiana Zdanoka, who's a a Latvian politician. Well, she was a member of the Latvian Communist Party well after the Latvian Communist Party had been banned after the fall of the Soviet Union. She's been an outspoken proponent and advocate of Russia's foreign policy uh, to the extent that, I mean, her sympathies, her, her, her loyalty lies nakedly with Moscow, not with Riga. Uh, she was one of 13 MEPs to vote against the uh, condemnation of the invasion of Ukraine. She's traveled to occupied Crimea. She's traveled to Syria to meet with Bashar al-Assad. And lo and behold, for 20 years, she's been an agent of the FSB's Fifth Service. Now, that's a, an intelligence unit. It's actually a military unit within the FSB, one of the successor organs to the old Soviet KGB. It was created in the 1990s, but really reconstituted after the 2004 Color Revolutions uh, to focus on um, preventing political destabilization as the Russians see it. In other words, you know, democratization in countries such as Ukraine, Georgia, um, you know, Kyrgyzstan, etc. So the Fifth Service acts like a foreign intelligence arm of Russia's domestic security agency. And they've been quite hi- hyperactive. So this is the agency, or this is the unit rather, that was designated by Putin to politically destabilize Ukraine going back a decade right after Euromaidan, right after, I mean, these were the guys who told Viktor Yanukovych, the now former president of Ukraine, that he should open fire on pro-democracy protesters in Kiev in 2014. These are the guys that were sent to basically create fifth columnists in the lead up to the full-scale invasion in February 2022. Now, all of that went sideways, as we've seen. And uh, one of the reasons it did is because like every other institution in Russia, the Fifth Service is incredibly corrupt. And Sergei Beseda, the, the the head of it, was basically stealing the money that was earmarked for trying to co-opt Ukraine. So, but anyway, our investigations have shown the Fifth Service, every, every officer that we've exposed is a member of the FSB Fifth Service. It's shown that they're not just limited to uh, one country that Russia is currently occupying, but they are indeed. I mean, uh, plying their trade all over Europe, from Germany, where they have been running uh, an, a now former Bundestag aide to an AFD, or frankly, neo-Nazi parliamentarian, uh, Sergienko, to Italy, where in 2018, a member of the Fifth Service was sat in a hotel in Moscow, across from uh, uh, Matteo Salvini's uh, right-hand man. Savioni, who's uh, uh, Savoini, sorry, who is known as the, as the Salvini Sherpa to Russia, and was offering a bribe to say, we will give you sixty five million dollars from some Fugese oil deal that you can line your party coffers with. The party, of course being what was then known as Lega North, now known as Lega. And this was at a time when Salvini was Deputy Prime Minister of Italy. So they are bribing, they are handling, controlling, they are paying. And they are influencing a host of politicians all across Europe. And the one sort of common theme to, to these investigations is, guess what every politician was doing? Earn his keep or her keep. They were trying to screw up European security assistance and diplomatic unanimity with respect to Ukraine. So it shows just how outsized of an issue this is and has been for many, many years for Putin. Ukraine was almost the Rosetta Stone for understanding all Russian malign activities going back even more than a decade, I would say.
0: Well, let me let me ask you a question. Well, wait, this is the point in the show where I normally say to folks who are not members, um, can't go any further. Uh, you know, we hope you become a member. Go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership. Uh, And then you'll get all the bonus content that goes with all of our podcasts, which is roughly a third of each podcast. Um, So that's a lot when we're doing 15 podcasts a week or whatever it is that we're doing. Uh, So it's a great value. And right now it's cheaper than it will be starting March 1st. So it's an excellent opportunity for you to do it. So go do it now and then you can listen to the rest of this podcast. But for now, if
2: you're not a member, bye-bye. And if you are a member, stand by.